Our scripture this morning comes from Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out by the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may our salvation God protect me. I'll praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his, his captive people. This is the word of the Lord. Through the Psalms together this morning, we are listening to these words together in church, but also wanting to know how we can make them our own words throughout the week. And so I've included some quotes and questions for you in the bulletin. Those are prompts for you to help you as you bring these things home. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we came because it's time to worship. We brought with us all kinds of different things, grief, joy, hope for the future, a barb lodged in our heart. Tiredness, confusion. Help us to know, O oh God, that in all of these things you are our hope in life and in death, so that we might sing Alleluia, so that we might know that you, Jesus, are the lover of our soul and all that is within it, that we might follow you into a foggy future, walking on water. We trust that your spirit is here and so that you hear this prayer even more certainly than we believe what we are saying. 
Amen. This summer, we're looking at some of the Psalms together in our Sunday worship. I've said that about 1,200 times already. The thing about the Psalms, though, is that they push us to the margins of our own lives. They would have us explore some of the things that sometimes we would rather not explore. They would have us see the things that we might rather not see. Sometimes I think we imagine that praying the Psalms is a way to calm down, a way to lower our blood pressure, to put the noisy conflicts of our outer world and our inner world on mute for a while. You might remember that Seinfeld episode, uh, famous episode, where Frank gets a relaxation cassette from his doctor. Frank has trouble with his anger, right? And whenever his blood pressure goes up, he's supposed to say, serenity now. Except that when Frank says it, he yells it, serenity now! All through the episode, Frank repeats the mantra, you know, when Estelle nags him to fix the front door while Kramer battles neighborhood boys who are flinging eggs at him. Serenity now! At one point, George, his son, asks, are you supposed to yell it? Frank responds, the man wasn't specific. <laughs> that, might be, that might be how we think of prayer, too, sometimes, I wonder. Right, that, that prayer... Prayer is like a magic pill for our spiritual blood pressure, right? Prayer makes us perpetually tranquil people. Right? But, but psalm prayer isn't a warm blanket over a troubled soul. Psalm prayer prays the trouble. It stirs it up. That's why the Psalms hang out on the margins of life, right? On the margins. And, you know, one of the things that I was struck by is something that John Calvin said. He said that the Psalms are the anatomy of all the parts of a soul. His point is to say that everything that's in the Psalms is there because it's in us. Right? And if, if Calvin is right that the Psalms give us a map of what's in our own souls, we might be surprised. We might be surprised to see what's in there, that we might find questions like those we heard last week in Psalm 13, how long, Yahweh? Questions that we ask not because we want a timetable, but because that is what you do when God seems like he is busy doing something else. Right? That's a margin in our lives. And if Calvin is right, if the Psalms give us this map of what's in our own souls, we may also be surprised and maybe shocked to discover something else. Because today, Psalm 69 tells us that what is also in there, perhaps on the margins, is a whole lot of anger. And not just anger, but a thirst for vengeance against our enemies. 
Last week, I referred to the psalmist as she. This week, in a sense of balance, I'll refer to the psalmist as he. And so he is drowning. The psalmist is crying out for help. He is sinking in the mud. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I am in over my head and I cannot touch the bottom, O God. And I do not know how long I will be able to tread water. I am alone in the middle of the ocean. I am calling for help. I am calling to you. My eyes strain the horizon looking for a rescue helicopter. But my eyes are tired from peering into empty blue sky. My voice, my voice is worn thin from calling for help on a radio that no one is answering. But there is another more pressing problem besides drowning. Besides the rising floods of his trouble, those who hate me outnumber the hairs on my head. My life is full of people who want to end mine. They hunt me down. They want me to apologize for the pain that they are causing me. They want me to pay for what I did not steal. In Psalm 69, there are three presences. The psalmist... God and the enemies. It may be that if you go back and look through the collection of Psalms, you'll find that on the margins of many, many, many Psalms, there are enemies there too. The psalmist isn't just drowning in his trouble. The psalmist has enemies who are ridiculing him for his trouble. And as the psalm goes on, we discover that that is the trouble, that what he is drowning in isn't actually the trouble, but the enemies who dump on him for it. And he's really angry about it. You know, it's one thing to find yourself in a world of trouble and pain, but then to have your friends or your family, to have your community turn against you and scorn you because you're suffering. In Psalm 69, what becomes clear is that that is the real source of pain. His friends weren't there to help him. Instead, they mocked him. His story is what they talk about in whispers at the grocery store. He is the butt of the joke at the local bar and the punchline of their drinking songs. At the moment when he needed help, he found only enemies. The psalmist is weeping and fasting, but the people in his life, they don't want him to be sad. They keep telling him to get over it. This is your fault anyway. No matter where he turns, the psalmist, he looks for friends to face this with, but finds no one. Instead of inviting them, instead of inviting him over for dinner, the people closest to him, it's like they're poisoning his food. The psalmist is sinking. Death threatens to close its gaping mouth around him. Why? Because scorn has broken his heart. And the scorn came from inside the house. My friend and fellow preacher, Kevin Adams, once heard a story. He has a friend. She had a husband who returned home from a months-long work assignment. 
He then promptly informed Kevin's friend, informed her that he was moving in with another woman. And she was crushed. But she was determined not to let it get her down. So she posted the serenity prayer all over her house, in every room of her home. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's probably a prayer almost as well known as Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer. We find it helpful. I know I have. Sure, but Kevin wondered if his friend would be wiser to post Psalm 69 instead. Because Psalm 69 knows about what it is like when you find out you've been sleeping with the enemy. Because in verse 22, he prays an astoundingly powerful prayer of vengeance. Lord, may the evil that my enemies planned around their tables come upon their own heads. Lord, may the trap that they have set for me catch their leg instead. Lord, turn out the lights on them so that they stumble in darkness for the rest of their lives. Lord, may you pour out your wrath upon them. Lord, may their name be blotted out of the book of life. Once again, Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar and theologian, is there for us with a quote. He says, the most troublesome dimension of the Psalms is this agenda for vengeance, this cry for retaliation. It surprises us. It offends us. It does not fit very well in our usual notions of faith or piety or spirituality. Amen and amen. And yet there it is. Seven whole verses filled with all of the unadulterated heat of some of the most intense and precatory words in the entire Psalter. They really are there. It really is a prayer offered to God. And remembering what Calvin said before we realize, remembering what Calvin said before we realize that the reason that it's there in the psalm is because it's in our own souls too. When I was doing a THM, uh, I had a graduate course on worship in the Psalms along with a student named Eric. Eric is probably the biggest fanboy of the Psalms I have ever known in my life. The intensity with which he would talk about them kind of made you want to find other things to talk about, to be honest. Eric is a Presbyterian pastor, right? My same friend, Kevin Adams, he also knows Eric. And he once described Eric like this. He said, if you were to check Eric's Facebook status, you would read lines like, worked all night at the studio, or spent the evening sequencing music and the vocals are tremendous, or took service at Village Church. Nothing unusual about that except for the fact that Eric lives and works in Pakistan, where Christians are a tiny discarded minority, so his Facebook status will also sometimes include things like this, young Christian boy murdered in police custody. And police fire shells on rally and arrest Christian protesters. So that's the world that Eric lives in, and Eric is on a mission. He is determined to help Pakistani Christians reclaim a heritage of singing the Psalms in Punjabi, 
set to indigenous rhythms and melodies there. You see, a hundred years ago, missionaries worked to establish schools and hospitals and churches in Pakistan. They were hoping that faith would spread, and it did. But one of the ways it spread was because a local Anglican pastor named I.D. Shabazz translated the Psalms into poetic Punjabi language and set them to bhajan folk tunes. In other words, he taught them how to sing the Psalms in their own words. They were an instant hit. The ranks of Punjabi Christians grew quickly. Soon Anglicans and Baptists and Catholics and other Christians, they were all including them in their hymnals. But the first generation died and the tunes were lost from collective memory. And in their place, Eric would say, believers began singing theologically lightweight lyrics. I told you he's intense, right? Neglecting the precious pearls of worship, he would say. One day, Eric discovered a complete uh, 1905 Punjabi Psalter, and when he did, he became determined to preserve and transfer this heritage to the next generation. He created a school, the Telahim School of Church Music and Worship. But just a couple months after the work began, it stopped. Why? Eric was attacked in Karachi. They tried to kidnap him at gunpoint. They tried to stuff him in a van. He resisted. But he wound up in the hospital, wounded by his enemies. What would you say? That same year at seminary, I had another colleague, also equally passionate about worship in the Psalms. His name was Emmanuel, and he was Nigerian. He was there to learn as much about worship as he could so that he could teach his people. Because, you see, Emmanuel came from a very dangerous province in a rural part of the country. And so he soaked up as much theology as he could, knowing that he had to take this back because his people needed it. They needed to know how to worship in the face of enemies. Are you hearing a theme? He took as many books home with him as he could fit in his suitcases. He returned home to share what he learned about psalms and worship. Last spring, I received the news that he was gunned down with his wife in their garden. How do you respond to enemies? How do you pray when people beat up your pastor or kill your son? What do you say when it feels like everyone in your life is turned against you, like a flood rising around your neck? I can't help but wonder that my brothers would say, Psalm 69 might be a good place to start. Yes, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. Our first thought is that all those stories feel very far away. We might even breathe a sigh of relief that we don't live in a lawless place like that. I don't have any enemies, we might say to ourselves. I don't hate anyone. And yes, wouldn't we all like to say that no one ever takes justice into their own hands in this country? We would like to forget that already this year there have been 296 mass shootings in America. We do not like to realize the headline that 2021 is on track to be the deadliest year of gun violence in 20 years, which comes from CBS, by the way. Of course, we all know that social media is a place of remarkable charity and grace and kindness toward each other, is it not? 
only we could run to church for refuge. But even there, sometimes there are enemies. A survey came out a few years ago showing that the average pastor leaves a church because of three people. Three people are enough to make life unbearable. Yeah, but every pastor knows that survey's wrong. It only takes one. Maybe there is more in our souls than we realize after all. Maybe there are more enemies on the margins of our lives than we thought. The Psalms know what goes on in our hearts, even if we don't. We want to be right. Or if we can't be right, at least we want to be stronger. Right? The Psalms show us that this yearning for vengeance, it is among us. It is within us. And it is extraordinarily powerful. Each of us knows what it is to nurture that fantasy, right, for what we wish we'd said. We play it back in our head. It feels good. What we don't know is what to do with it. Psalm 69 teaches us that the best way to deal with our anger, with this extraordinarily powerful longing, and with our enemies, is not to fight them ourselves, but to place them in God's hands through prayers of vengeance. For in his wisdom, the psalmist knows that he is angry, and he knows that when we are angry, that vengeance is not safe with us. Given the chance, he will do to his enemies what they have done to him. He seems to understand how often we think of justice, but more often what we mean is payback. He knows that sometimes we get very confused between the longing to have things set right when actually what we mean is we want our enemies put under our feet. And so the only one with whom vengeance is safe is God. For with God, vengeance is part of how God sets the world right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That means it's not ours. And so the thing to do is not to pretend we are not angry. The thing to do is to offer our rage to God. We ask God to be the one to pour out wrath. We take what is in our heart and we aim it up straight at the heart of God. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me as I was thinking about this is that words and anger go together. But many times for us, when we are angry, our words go to a friend with whom we vent, right? Or perhaps the words come at us in the form of angry music, which we hope will help us to manage the anger, right? But you ever notice that sometimes... Uh, maybe often, it just makes the anger grow. So what's different in Psalm 69 is that the psalmist's anger and words, they go together, but they don't nurture the anger. They don't expand it. They lead the anger. For seven verses, the psalmist lets all the heat and rage out, but then it is spent and the psalmist lands in verse 29 with some very profoundly strange words. But as for me, 
afflicted and in pain as I am, may your salvation protect me. The fierce words of this psalm land in, of all places, self-awareness and trust. And then, praise. In verse 33, he remarks, God hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Do you see what the psalmist is showing us? Right? Praying our vengeance is actually an act of trust. By setting it in God's hands, we remove it from ours and we say that, God, I trust you to sort it all out. By placing our anger and our enemies in God's hands, we trust that he is the one who is just. He is the one who does what is right, and he will in his time set all things right. And in spending our rage on God, we turn to a place where we can see ourselves again. We can see that even though we are hurting, we too are also in God's hands. And that frees us for praise, praise, real, authentic praise that comes from knowing deep in our bones that God hears all of our prayers. God hears this drowning, impatient, angry, and vindictive prayer. In fact, Yahweh is the only one who will and who can. And we pray it in trust because we see that once upon a time, God prayed it to God's self. Jesus is portrayed to us in the Bible as someone who operates out of a place of settledness. But Jesus also gets angry. One time, Jesus got really angry in the temple and he turned over some tables and he scattered the money changers and somehow it was pure and it was righteous. And what did he quote in order to explain it? He quoted Psalm 69. He quoted it to show us what actually pure zeal for God looks like. And later, Jesus is desperate to help his disciples understand what is about to happen at his death. And they're at a meal together, and they don't get it. And he is trying to show them by washing their feet and giving them a meal and praying for them and telling them about the future. He is trying in all of these ways to explain the rejection and the scorn that he is experiencing from his own people. And what does he do? He quotes Psalm 69. And then on the cross, we see it depicted when Jesus cries out to God who isn't listening and he says, I thirst and they give him vinegar on a sponge. God is showing us that Jesus' job is to bear affliction that is not his fault. Jesus comes to bear God's wrath. And when we see him wearing it, instead of saying thank you, we scorned him. He's on the cross and we're shaking our heads saying, if he really was loved by God, he wouldn't be suffering. You know, if he really had God's spirit, he wouldn't be so sad. If he really was a powerful man of God, he wouldn't be dying like such a wimp. And what we do not know is that all along the scorn he wears is ours. The wrath that we despise is what was coming for us. 
He was wearing our iniquity and we laughed at him. And like a lamb, he was silent. He did not retaliate. And what happens is that the trap we set for him caught our leg instead. God bears the vengeance of God. God bears the wrath that was coming for us so that we could be forgiven without being obliterated. And at this table, we see that the trap we set for Jesus has caught us. We gather around this table as those who were enemies with each other and with God. We gather as those who have wounded each other and God. We gather as those who are angry for all that is not right in the world. And we gather trusting that God has heard all of it. And that God will yet set all things right. How do we know? Because to us, this cup tastes like forgiveness. Because to Jesus, it was the bitterness of wrath. Because to us, this bread feeds us with reconciliation because to him, he was torn by our condemnation. So friends, eat, drink, remember, and believe that the Lord has heard the needy. He's heard you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, this is your table. And you invite us here out of custom and out of need, out of a place of deep woundedness, and out of the longing against hope, for the hope that yet all things will be revealed and made right. In the meantime, help us to find ourselves in the Psalms. Use these words to lead us to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Friends, I'd invite you to rise in body or in spirit and let's respond together singing Sovereign.
Brothers and sisters, we respond together by lifting our voices, proclaiming our trust. We also do so by offering the things that he's given us in trust as well. This is the spot where normally we'd be able to pass a basket to each other, expressing our trust by giving some of the money that God has given us for our offering. Today, we have to do that in different ways. You can give both online and at the entrance or by dropping a check off. But we remember that together that this is also part of our response. Friends, you may be seated. Having gathered together because it was time to worship, having brought whatever was with us that we know or didn't, God has met us. He has assured us that now is the time to worship whatever now feels like to you. He's reminded us that he is the lover of our soul and everything that is within it. And we have expressed our trust to be willing to follow him no matter what the future looks like. But we do not leave on our own steam. Before we go, he's brought us to a table with a meal to feed us and give us strength for the journey. Friends, all is ready. This is Christ's table, whether you are at your table at home or gathered around this one here. It's Christ's table and everything is ready, and so let's feast together. When we do so, we are taking communion individually in single-serve packets. I'd invite you to turn it over so that the wafer part is on the top. In a minute, I'll tell you to remove that lid, and we'll go ahead and do that together. First, would you pray with me? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let's pray together. We lift our hearts and souls to you, Lord God, for you made creation out of nothing, and in Abraham you called a people to be your own. You crafted a destiny for your children from the barrenness of despair and the wilderness of sin. You made an everlasting covenant that bound you and humanity to be with one another forever. In Jesus, you made a new covenant that embodied our presence before you and your full presence before us. And so we gladly thank you with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven proclaiming together your unending praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Uniting God, you bind yourself to us in Christ's death, and you bind us to yourself in Christ's resurrection. In him, we are dead to sin and alive to you. Send now your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this meal in his presence and memory that we might be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven people, delivered from the curse of all slavery. And that this bread and this wine may be for us the body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who, at supper with his disciples, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice on, before he suffered. On the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks to God, he gave it to them, saying, 
this cup is the new covenant which is sealed in my blood, poured out for you and for many. Whenever you drink it, do this to remember me. For friends, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim together the Lord's death until he comes again. And great is the mystery of faith. Together, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Jealous God, you want us for yourself. And you shape all of our loves in the refining fire of your love for us and for this world. Give your consolation to all who live with no peace but only a sword. Dwell with those who find their household divided, son against father, mother against daughter, and any who find it hard to love you and cherish their family members too. Restore your church that we may discover you on the way of the cross and find our life by losing it for your sake until the day when you are the joy of our desiring and we the joy of yours, when every eye shall behold you and every tongue confess you as Lord, one and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all those who love and trust in him alone for their salvation, all who are sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who desire to live in obedience to him are invited to come now with gladness to the table of the Lord. For friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. If you would, please join me in opening the first side. Brothers and sisters, take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Savior Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. If you would, please turn your plate over and it becomes a cup. Brothers and sisters, take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Friends, the God who has gathered us here because it was time to worship, who has fed us with his grace and at his table, now sends us out saying it is time to proclaim the good things that you have heard and learned here. Would you please rise? Brothers and sisters, as you leave the sanctuary today, may you know the hope to which God has called you. May you experience the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and trust his incomparably great power for us who believe. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Let's go singing. Oh,
peace. Have a great week.